Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. How do y'all like the new music? That we got to introduce the podcast. I'm probably going to be experimenting with some different types of music and some different beats and all kinds of stuff here over the next few weeks as we get into this new technology here with the Believe Podcast Network. Welcome in, everybody. It is a lovely Tuesday at the time of recording. It is August 17th, and we've got a fun show planned for you today. I'm going to be going deep into the Wayback Machine, but since I am in Gen Z and I've only experienced life for 20 years, our Wayback Machine isn't going to quite be that far back, but we're going to go back and tell a fun story around some running backs coming up later on the podcast, and we'll get to some other fun stuff here throughout the day. But first, let's talk some baseball, and in order to talk some baseball here on the Take It Easy podcast... We got to hit that lovely music courtesy of my man Rob Stone and the Padres rap anthem for the 2021 season. Shout out to my man Rob Stone, San Diego 619, for making a banger of a Padres rap anthem this year. Although the rap anthem's kind of been neutered a little bit because of uh, the Padres going downhill a little bit here over the past few days. Although I was about to say Bryce Harper was going to win the MVP, and then Fernando Tatis Jr. had to come back and hit two home runs in his first game back with a separated shoulder, having to play in the outfield to try and avoid him getting hurt on a shoulder that very clearly needs surgery. He's been on the IL three times this year. Got to get that shoulder fixed in the offseason, but they're desperately trying to keep Tatis here because 2021 was supposed to be the prime window for the Padres. I remember back in 2017 when we had a terrible team and we were retooling the farm system, the Padres had said basically at the time, like, we're shooting for 2021. 
that's our hope. That's our goal. And we think we can build a competitive team then. And that was the blueprint. That was the timeline. And here we are in 2021. And, uh, Padres are out here losing games to the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Miami Marlins and now the Colorado Rockies. Padres have actually lost the season series to the Colorado Rockies. It's a weird fun fact for those who may not have known that. They are losing the season series 9-8 to to the Colorado Rockies this year, who are by default 10th place in the National League because the National League has some really crappy teams, uh, one of which no-hit the San Diego Padres on Saturday. So, as you can tell, my San Diego Padres, as Ted Leitner likes to say, are not on the greatest stretch right now. And we'll talk about them, and we'll talk about three other teams that have been on some weird skids right now, and we'll see where else we bounce here in this Baseball Tuesday here on the Take It Easy podcast. Um, But let's start with the San Diego Padres here, because they're the team that I root for, the team I watch closely, and one of the last fandoms that I still have going on in, like, legitimate fandom. Um, I don't root for any NFL team anymore, and it was actually the Chargers leaving San Diego that initially got me inspired to kind of like enjoy the life without having to invest way too much of your emotional stability in a corporation that produces wins and losses on a field that ultimately in the grand scheme of things are pretty meaningless. Um, But it means a lot to a lot of people. It's why sports are so great and why I love talking about them all the time is because of that it means a lot to a lot of people and it creates this own environment, this own club, this subculture that millions of people rally around. And usually that's around football, but it works for basketball and baseball very much too in my life personally. Now, every sport has this subculture within them. These are just the ones that I partake in the most. And one of the things I've found interesting is as my Charger fandom faded away and The Laker fandom I was born into faded to the background as I lost an emotional connection to the team. The Padres one has gone undying. I love the San Diego Padres, and in the spirit of the great philosopher Michael Vick, yes, that Michael Vick, if you don't love where you come from, you're going to be miserable and trying to chase something that doesn't exist because everyone's home, everyone's point of origin is that they have that unique bond to it. And if you don't like where you come from, you're going to end up being miserable trying to chase that feeling that other people have. And it's a really profound idea that Michael Vick talks about. In the, it was in his 30 for 30 documentary about him, uh, which I highly encourage people to watch, not just for the wisdom, but the Michael Vick story is really kind of messed up. So I would say check out that documentary if you haven't. I think a lot of people would enjoy it. But I love San Diego for that emotional connection to the Padres. I, For those who don't know, I grew up in San Diego, born and raised, and now live in Northern California, go to college, have no intentions of moving back home after I graduate. And that that's like San Diego is, is a place that's been in the back burner for myself. And there's this love for the Padres and going to games at Petco, which is by far the best professional sports stadium, in my humble opinion. But as you can tell, like... Fans say that their own stadium is the best stadium. It's it's just one of these weird emotional connections that we have to it, where of course it's the best. Think of all these wonderful memories and wonderful emotions that we've created inside of these stadiums. 
And so the Padres have really stunk recently, like really stunk. They now have 12 pitchers on the IL, including four of their top-end starters, being Adrian Morej, well, really five, if you want to count Mike Clevenger, who was going to be out the entire season because he had Tommy John last year. But Denelson Lamette, Mike Clevenger, Adrian Morejon, Chris Paddock, the sheriff, and now you Darvish being gone. And they, you know, to try and stop the bleeding, signed Jake Arrieta, but I don't know how much that's going to help. He got cut by the Cubs because he had a six and a half ERA this year and he's 35 years old. But 35 year olds have stranger things have happened with 35 year olds. Hell, Rich Hill at 40 years old won player of the month in May. So like stranger things have happened, but it's like trying to, to fix it's trying to fix a hole in the Titanic with super glue because the Padres have really been fading recently as their offense picks up and they have the deepest lineup top to bottom in the National League and that includes the LA Dodgers who have just been smoking hot ever since they made the major trade deadline acquisition and got Max Scherzer and Trey Turner which we don't really talk about enough is the emotional toll that trade deadline week takes on a team because you know whether the next two months matter and I talked about this with the Diamondbacks a f- couple months ago. This was back in June when the Diamondbacks were on the worst losing streak in MLB history and they had lost, went two months, two full months without winning a road game back in June and they still have the worst record in baseball is that when you are four months out into a season and there's, you know, 100 games to go and you know you have nothing to play for, That is a miserable feeling, miserable, that you have four months of just meaningless, and everyone's angry, and everyone knows that they're on the chopping block, because if you're part of the worst team in baseball, it's already fielding a minor league team, as the Arizona Diamondbacks have been all season, and as the Chicago Cubs and Washington Nationals just started to do after trading their entire rosters in a really exciting trade deadline. Um, But now both of these teams are on all-time losing streaks. The Cubs have lost 11 in a row and just got to 12 after losing to the Cincinnati Reds yesterday. And the Washington Nationals had lost 10 of 11 going back to, I think that would be August 3rd or 4th, right after the trade deadline. So both those teams end up trading and everyone just knows, okay, season's over, we're punting, we're trying to lose as many games as possible. We got Austin Romine playing shortstop for the Cubs, which by the way, if you're a baseball fan and you haven't seen that Cubs roster, the same one that won the World Series five years ago, like it's crazy. The only other comparison point I have was when the Royals won the World Series and like three years later they were just fielding a minor league team. And the Cubs roster just looks unrecognizable from what it used to be, except the untradeable contract of Jason Hayward still hanging out in Chicago. And they still got David Bodie and Ian Happ and Zach Davies for a couple more months, but still. Unrecognizable as they go on a 12-game losing streak and are now worse than the Rockies, about to be worse than the Marlins, trying to get to the very bottom of the NL ladder. And so those teams end up getting the emotional toll of selling at the deadline and having nothing to play for. And the Padres and Dodgers, who of course this always comes back to Padres and Dodgers because, you know, I'm a Padres fan. And there's an inferiority complex that I try to, you know, I I like to think I don't partake in it because I don't, 
like the Dodgers. I hate I I almost broke my hand as a teenager a couple of years ago because the Dodgers were playing the Nationals and won like a meaningless playoff game in 2019. And I I realize now that there's like a weird investment of emotional stability in sporting events. And I guess I'm all I I guess I look for like the maximum pleasure side instead of like the pain pleasure side is how can you minimize pain and maximize pleasure within your sports fandom and part of that is why I like to gamble for entertainment purposes only but at the same time with uh foot or with baseball is that I look at the Padres right now and say that you know, we were going to be the fifth seed no matter what, despite losing, you know, four or five games to the Rockies and the Rockies and Marlins and Diamondbacks. But we were go. I mean, even though it's a sinking ship right now and they hit rock bottom on Saturday by getting no hit by the worst team in baseball with a guy making his first career MLB start, which, by the way, Tyler Gilbert could still turn into an all time type of player like that's not out of the question yet. So the Padres hit rock bottom then, and I looked at it now and said, okay, the Padres coming into the trade deadline were not better than the Dodgers and probably weren't better than the Giants, which the Giants don't make any sense. We can talk about them in full volume and try and figure that out. Nothing makes sense about the Giants. And in fact, now that we mentioned the Giants, this just gives me an excuse to play their 1970s theme home run song because it's an absolute banger. And why wouldn't we play the song just because we've mentioned the San Francisco Giants? Giants are in first place in all of baseball by like four games right now, and they're like five games better than the Dodgers. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, We did a podcast six weeks ago saying they'd probably fade, but it's still the coolest story in baseball for now. And they're still in first place, still the best team in baseball. I don't understand it at all. But we were talking about the Padres. second to go and and the Padres I guess I'm kind of the cowardly angel of nuance here who's saying we were the fifth team before this and we're still the fifth team after it even though the Padres now find themselves just one and a half games ahead of the Cincinnati Reds and the Cincinnati Reds have the third easiest strength of schedule left in baseball while the Padres have the hardest schedule left in the National League uh, with 12 to 13 games against the Giants and Dodgers still on the docket. So not great if you're a Padres fan. I think it might actually be uh, three series against the Giants. So that would be 18 games left against the Giants and Dodgers. So not great. 
But the thing that I gives me pause or gives me hope or optimism is the Padres are just a better team than the Cincinnati Reds. Like, by leaps and bounds, the Padres have been a better team than the Reds all season. And the Reds have been really good as of late. And part of that is the, the bats that they have, where all of a sudden they year over year go from they have awesome pitching and can't hit to great hitting and terrible pitching, which doesn't happen very often, but somehow keeps them mediocre through both seasons. And Cincinnati also benefits from playing in a division with the Cubs, who are tanking, and the Pirates, who are tanking, and the Cardinals, who nobody really knows what's going on with the Cardinals. We just know that they're worse than we expected, and their team is very top-heavy with their six stars and not a whole lot else. But the Padres, look, I look at that and say the point of optimism is the Padres, by leaps and bounds, should still be better than the Cincinnati Reds. And if they do end up missing the playoffs, all I can say to that is that it would just be disappointing. Because the whole way I had said with the Scherzer trade and with the Trey Turner trade that the Dodgers made going back to the deadline and the Giants being the best team in baseball and the fact that just coming out the gate, the Dodgers had a better team than the Padres at the start of the season was that we believed the Padres were not as good as the Dodgers, but we're still good enough to be second in the division and probably the second best team in the National League. Therefore, they would play in the wild card game no matter what. Then adjust your expectations to say wild card game on the road instead of at home. And I still feel like they're going to get to that point, even if the odds are, I think, 59% that they end up making the playoffs and the with every 14 to 6 victory over the Cubs, the Reds odds are increasing. And with every 5-2 to two loss against the Colorado Rockies, the Padres end up falling a little bit further down the list. But what's interesting about all of this is the disappointment is looming, and maybe some fan bases don't want to accept it. I know I as a Padres fan don't, but other Padres fans see rock bottom and say, it's over. And to that I say, what does over mean for you? What are each of your individual expectations? Because everyone's expectations will lead to different levels of disappointment. Which is a perfect segue into this other team that, you know, has kind of crapped away a lead that I thought was good enough to get them in the playoffs. And that is the Boston Red Sox. Because the Boston Red Sox were... First place in the American League East for pretty much the entire season. I mean, at the end of April, they were in first place. And they were in first place up until middle of last week. And the Boston Red Sox ended up falling, I think, 8 of 10 games. Marwin Gonzalez got DFA'd, who I thought originally was their first baseman. But I think their first baseman now might end up being... Danny Santana question mark Hunter Renfro can they move Hunter Renfro over to first base like I don't I don't even know what the game plan is for uh, Boston they have one, some of the worst production at first base in all of baseball and Boston a lead that I felt wasn't going to stand in the division because I would say at the trade deadline they were up four or five games on Tampa Bay and a good margin on the the uh, New York Yankees when I declared that the Yankees were done, and now the Yankees keg softball team has pulled up by winning 8 of 10 games and is now one game out of the playoffs, or half game out of the playoffs. 
Uh, it's really incredible how the Yankees always find a way to come back. And so Boston has a win streak that keeps them from fading out of the playoffs entirely in like two weeks. Like two weeks, they faded entirely out of the playoff picture. They're three and a half back of Tampa Bay now and falling rapidly. Obviously, they're on a win streak, so that helps. But they're falling back of Tampa Bay right now. They're two games ahead of the Yankees, which is going to be one and a half once they factor in that the Yankees won today. And Boston gave away a lead that I thought was going to be secure with eight weeks left in the season. I thought they were going to fade, but they were still going to make the wild card. Like they had surmounted enough of a lead that I felt they would be protected eight games better than the Yankees or better than the Blue Jays or what was at the time the Mariners, but the Mariners inevitably fell off because we knew the Mariners weren't actually that good. And Boston crapped away the lead in like two weeks, which was kind of baffling at the time. And Boston coming up now has a series against the Yankees that is going to be really, really exciting. Like really interesting to watch because Boston and the Yankees, if this swings the other way for Boston and like say they get a three or four game sweep, of the Yankees. Well, now you've got some sort of security because you're now one and a half ahead of the Yankees. And now then you would be five and a half ahead of the Yankees or four and a half and create some sort of security or the more likely scenario, like three and a half. But if shit goes south for the Boston Red Sox, this is a collapse that while I had been saying Boston isn't as good as their record suggests, isn't as good as their record suggests all season, I did not expect them to crap away, uh, not just the division lead, but crap away the wild card lead within two weeks. It's a really weird turn of events for Boston that I did not foresee, just like I did not foresee the Padres' entire pitching staff falling apart, and now they only have a 60% chance of making the playoffs, when two weeks ago those chances were 95%. And if the Padres beat the Giants and the Dodgers in some of these games they're not expected to win, those percentages will flip back the other way. I don't know how they're going to do that yet, but I expect that they'll still make the playoffs. I can't say the same about Boston, because Boston is a team that I expected to free fall before, and they'll probably progress to the mean, make sure to take a shot if you're playing the drinking game at home, because every time I say progress or regress to the mean, you got to take a shot, even if it's at 7.38 in the morning. Even as Boston progresses to the mean, they still find themselves in a difficult position because they are not as talented as the Yankees. They are not as talented for some reason as the Tampa Bay Rays. They were a team that we expected to finish third or fourth in that division. And while they're fending off Toronto quite nicely, Toronto's had a string of blown leads by their bullpen. And I think Brad Hand blew one the other day against the Mariners too. So... Toronto has just had bad luck that I think they're better than their record suggests, which is not great for Boston because that means that they're on the outside looking in with Oakland fairly secure in the wild card picture. Like I feel like Oakland's the fourth best team in the American League, but Oakland in the uh, battle of the nerds in the wild card, Oakland lives to have wild card games at their home stadium that they end up losing. I think 
2018 and 2019, Oakland lost the wild card game. Last year, they won the wild card series, and then while having favor, I mean, it was a neutral site, but while being favorites against Houston, ended up getting smacked in the second round of the playoffs. So that's kind of where Oakland lives is kind of around that fourth or fifth best team in the American League for the past four years while Matt Chapman and Matt Olson are on rookie contracts. But still, Oakland feels pretty secure and it feels like this is going to come down to Boston and New York. And if all of a sudden you've taken away the eight game lead that Boston had on New York and now they're only two games apart. And I'm taking the Yankees. And maybe it's it's also not good to pivot back and forth because it only makes you more wrong in in these situations like I did with the Phoenix Suns in the NBA Finals by saying that the Bucks and six, Bucks and six, then it got to 2-0. I'm like, all right, I guess Giannis isn't healthy. The Bucks are bucking things up and Giannis is going to end up losing because of his team and his injury. But then, of course, they had the comeback from down 0-2 because Giannis is a super freak who averages 35-12 and shoots 63% from the field across a final series in one of the all-time great performances we've ever seen. But I get to not be right, even though I'd said from the beginning, Bucks and Six, I don't get to take credit for it. And I certainly don't get to take credit if the Yankees end up fading out of the playoff picture now, because I have bailed on my original thesis of saying the Yankees are done. And I am now pivoting to saying that now that Boston has blown their entire lead, in the division, and in the wild card, because now they're behind Oakland, I am going the other way to say Boston probably going to fade out of the playoff picture, and only would it take like an Oakland collapse for that to not come true. The final team I wanted to touch on real quick is the New York Mets, because Getting swept by the Dodgers really hurts, especially when uh, the Braves overtake that division lead, which I had someone crap on me for the whole uh, run differential thing and about using using run differential too much in my analysis, but the Braves were the only team that was positive in the run differential, and lo and behold, they are first place and pulling away in the National League East. They were the only NL East team that had a positive run differential for most of the season, and that made me feel like the Braves were going to come back, and then Ronald Acuna got hurt, and that felt like that was the end of it, but then they got a bunch of small guys like Jock Peterson, and all of a sudden they end up in first place in the division, a team that's going to get smacked by the Milwaukee Brewers in the first round, but is still going to maybe make the playoffs and even though their window is closing improved just ever so slightly so the the Braves good to them but the losers in that equation are the New York Mets who find themselves getting swept by the Dodgers including a like a pummeling on Sunday night baseball I was at a trivia night and I got to see some of that game and boy they got smacked I think it was like 14 to 3 it was 14 to 4 correction but they got smacked in that game. And the Mets are kind of holding on for dear life here, right? Like, yes, they got Javi Baez and they had the cool moment where he hit the home run. But ultimately, they're kind of just surviving by like the, the tips of their tongues at this point. Like the Padres trying to bail water. But unfortunately for them, they hadn't created a huge lead in the first place. And now the Mets find themselves sitting just one game above 500. And in reality, I think the Mets are better than one game above 500. I think that's just an unfortunate fall that now they will progress at some point when, I guess, 
maybe DeGrom gets healthy, but we talked about this last week. Like, I can't believe how valuable Jacob DeGrom is to that team. Like, with what feels like for four years, the Mets have just been collecting starting pitchers. Like, just collecting starting pitchers. When they have a full rotation, they trade for Marcus Stroman. When they have a full rotation, they trade for Carlos Carrasco. And they just keep adding pitcher after pitcher after pitcher into the rotation, and yet they still can't find five healthy pitchers. Seems like something I could relate to as a San Diego Padres fan when we've traded for literally an entire starting lineup and an entire bullpen's worth of pitchers. And we can only find two or three good ones at one time and no number one star ever. Can't find a number one ace. While the Dodgers have four of them. They got Walker, Buehler, Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, and previously Trevor Bauer. Dodgers have four of them. Padres can't find a one. And the Mets despite having all these starting pitchers and having the best pitcher of our generation in Jacob deGrom. Hell, I could go as far to say Jacob deGrom is the best pitcher of my lifetime. Like 15 years of watching baseball, best pitcher I've ever seen. Jacob deGrom goes down, and all of a sudden they've just got total instability in the rotation, and it all collides on itself because Francisco Lindor is hurt, and he's your big money free agent. And other than that, they made some bad moves like giving $10 million to James McCann that we thought would be inevitable because of quote-unquote new owner-itis with Steve Cohen. But the Mets were winning a really crappy division, and they were going to get to be the team that would get the right to get pummeled by the Milwaukee Brewers in the NLDS. Now that honor looks like it's going to go to the Braves, and it's something that was foreseeable potentially but I don't think anyone went as far to say that it was going to 100% happen. This is Kyle from the future, and I need to give a little bit of a disclaimer. That was a spooky way of saying disclaimer, and I'm proud of myself for it. Um, So we were recording this podcast late on a... Monday for a podcast that was coming out on Tuesday and uh, as I reported that the Padres lost to the Colorado Rockies which put me in a bit of a mood to talk about the Padres as we were mid-recording Trent Grisham the gold glove center fielder for the San Diego Padres and infamously booted a ball in the outfield for the Milwaukee Brewers to lose a wild card game to the Washington Nationals that ended up creating a chain reaction that led to the Nationals winning the 2019 World Series instead of losing in that one game wild card that's a totally random sample size and baseball should expand to three game playoffs. <gasps> that Trent Grisham hit a three run homer down to the last out for the San Diego Padres to tie up the game against the Colorado Rockies. And you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it right now at the risk of having to come back again in the future. The Padres pulled an epic comeback win against said Colorado Rockies. So we can celebrate the victory of the San Diego Padres. We are not going down without a fight to none of these crappy teams This is what progression to the mean looks like. It looks like 8-0 comebacks against the Nationals, and it looks like three-run Trent Grisham homers to tie the game down to the last out. Hashtag Pod Squad 2021. We are back and making this run to the championship. Can you tell that I'm an avid Padres fan? Because you don't hear this side of me very much. 
but it's that one team representing the 619 that keeps me attracted to home that I will love until the end of time. We are back, baby. Fernando Tatis for MVP, San Diego Padres 2021, hashtag pod squad. And we're back again from the future because... I lost. Here is sound courtesy of AT&T Sportsnet Colorado of CJ Kron's walk-off home run for the Colorado Rockies five minutes after we finished recording that last segment from the future. Now, could I have just deleted all of it and nobody would have known because this is a podcast that's not going to drop for another, I don't know, 14 hours? Yeah, absolutely. But I think this is a funnier way to go about it. Talking about how the Padres lose to the Rockies, then finding out Trent Grisham hit a game-tying three-run homer down to the last out, and then having C.J. Cron five minutes later hit the walk-off homer for the Colorado Rockies. This ball well hit to right. This is a Moving on now, for our unofficial B-Block here today on the Take It Easy podcast, I'd like to go into the Wayback Machine and throw it back to the year 2013. You guys may know 2013, it wasn't that long ago, but it is a time of Katy Perry being at the top of the world, at least that's uh, what my recollection says. Drake had just dropped his third studio album, and the most popular movie was, uh, well, at least for my age, uh, Kung Fu Panda 2. And 2013 was also a time of change for the Alabama Crimson Tide in college football. Not necessarily where Alabama wasn't a college football powerhouse, because Alabama had just won back-to-back national championships in 2011 and 2012, kind of taking the reins from the Florida Gators as like the team of college football in that weird in-between from USC running college football to the one Troy Smith season, and then Florida ending up running the late 2000s. This is when Alabama kind of takes the reins and becomes a college football dynasty in a changing sport for an entire decade. Like, just dynastic, nobody can compete with the Alabama football team until Clemson came up on their tails and got them as, like, a second nip in the butt. And also, Ohio State won that one championship with Urban Meyer. The point being, Alabama was going to try and be the first team in the history of college football to win three consecutive national championships. They were undefeated through 2013. They'd had a ridiculous win streak of, gosh, I want to say it was, going back to the year before, I want to say 18 or 19 games. It was a ridiculously long win streak for Alabama. And the last game of the season, they take on the 
magical 2013 Auburn Tigers, which I will attest is one of the five or so greatest stories in the history of sports. Like, it's one of those stories that you make documentaries about. I was watching a um, a, a, a video on Moneyball and how they synced up the actual events of the last game in, in the movie. Think about that. You're In Moneyball, you're on the precipice of breaking the record for the most consecutive wins in the history of the American League. You have the lowest payroll in baseball, and you've created this new science that makes everyone realize, hey, this game we've been playing for 90 to 100 years, we've been doing it all wrong, 100% wrong. And you go up 11-0, 11-0, blow an 11-0 lead, and then hit a walk-off home run in the ninth inning, not uh, not dissimilarly to C.J. Cron breaking my heart in the previous seven minutes or so. And Alabama is playing Auburn, an Auburn team that the year before went 3-9, and nine, fired their coach, revamping their entire program. This year, they lose a game early in the season and then go on a magical run beating LSU, going into Texas A&M and beating Johnny Manziel, pulling off miracle win after miracle win, going to Georgia and winning in what was at the time the most improbable win of the last, like, 10 years in college football. A 4th and 22, Hail Mary, hits off the Georgia defender's helmet and falls into the arms of your streaking receiver who didn't even see the ball coming his way. And it goes for a game-winning touchdown. So that gets you to number 6 in the country, and you're playing Alabama who's won two consecutive national championships and is on the track for a third. They're the number one team in the country. Crazy win streak. And that game ends with a 109-yard kick return for a touchdown as time expires in the now famous kick six by a guy named Corey Davis. And in that moment, Alabama is no longer in championship contention because Auburn just won the SEC West and they're going to play in the Sugar Bowl that they will ultimately punt against Oklahoma because they just their season is over at that point. And then going into the next two seasons, Alabama ends up pulling together what I will attest is the greatest accumulation of talent at a single position of any team. And this is the moment that you can point to. If you want the trajectory of college football over the next seven years, leading to the college football system now where it's just Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and some other fourth team, sometimes Notre Dame, sometimes Oklahoma, filtered in as the other team in the playoff. If you want to find that system, it starts with this 2014 Alabama team that puts together a legendary cast of running backs. And the running backs are more a foil for what Alabama becomes, which is just an NFL machine. But Alabama puts together a team that had returning senior TJ Yeldon still on the team. They had incoming freshman Bo Scarborough, incoming freshman Alvin Kamara, and a sophomore running back named Derrick Henry. And that Alabama team had those four running backs going into the 2014 season, who all of them would end up making it to the NFL. They had a team at that moment with... TJ Yeldon taking the snaps over who would become a 2,000-yard rusher 
best running back of our generation, super freak of an athlete, Derrick Henry, had more rushing yards his senior year of high school than Baker Mayfield had passing yards in his Heisman Trophy season. And Derrick Henry ends up with a season behind TJ Yeldon, followed by Bo Scarborough, and Alvin Kamara can't even sniff the field as a freshman. And ultimately, Alvin Kamara ends up transferring to the University of Tennessee. I mean, you could argue as a way to spite Nick Saban, but Tennessee and Alabama are rivals only in geography and name. Because I think Alabama's won 14 straight against Tennessee. And Alvin Kamara goes to Tennessee, becomes a breakout like he was that talented coming out of high school, and ends up getting drafted in the third round by the Saints and becoming Alvin Shinsuke Nakamura, the second best running back in the NFL. Yes, I'm putting him over Christian McCaffrey. So Kamara ends up leaving after 2014, and the Alabama Crimson Tide team gets to the first ever college football playoff. Loses to that Ohio State team. It was a really weird time. They had Blake Sims as their quarterback, and they lost to third-string Cardale Jones because Ohio State had an awesome defense and an awesome running game that year, led by Zeke Elliott, of course. And Alabama goes out the next year, and the recruiting cycle nets them Kenyon Drake coming in as a freshman in 2015 and Damian Harris as a freshman coming in in 2015. So TJ Yeldon graduates, Alvin Kamara transfers, and who do you replace it with? A guy who's going to end up being a starter in two different places in the NFL, including a 1,000-yard rushing one season, and Damian Harris, who's now the starting running back with the New England Patriots. And those guys can't even sniff the field, because 2015 is the year that Derrick Henry ends up going for his Heisman Trophy season. And this ends up being a foil for Alabama, right? Alabama never had the, the superstar quarterback until Tua got there, and we found out Jalen Hurts later was better than we thought when he goes to Oklahoma, and Jalen Hurts is going to have one hell of a 30-for-30 30 30 one day. But he wasn't the top-rated recruit. It was only when Tua came that Alabama got that quarterback and was beating teams like 48 0 and then the team that was unbeatable got totally exposed by Clemson in the national championship game in 2018. And then 2019, they had a gap year because LSU sold their soul to the devil to win a national championship in football. But that all comes later. This is the first foray into that and the foil of the Alabama running back room, where now you've had in two years, six running backs touch the program who would end up going on to be NFL starting running backs, and Bo Scarborough, who didn't end up panning out quite the same way, but he's still in the NFL, you know, five years later, still hanging around with the Raiders right now, who, by the way, the Raiders end up being a fun foil for this whole story, because Josh Jacobs, you guys know him, first-round pick, Raiders, 2019, during that 2015 season on the recruiting trail, Josh Jacobs commits to play at the University of Alabama. And Josh Jacobs would not see the field until after Scarborough leaves, after Kenyon Drake leaves for the NFL draft, which by the way, correction, Kenyon Drake was a sophomore during that 2014 or 2015 season. So he was on the team in 2014. It was only later that 
he would end up getting playing time behind Derrick Henry during that 2015 run ahead of Alvin Kamara. So Alvin Kamara was technically the fifth running back on that team at one point. So Kenyon Drake ends up coming in and he gets drafted in 2016. So flip Bo Scarborough and Kenyon Drake, apologies. And Kenyon Drake ends up being behind Derrick Henry during the Heisman season. Bo Scarborough comes in there. Damian Harris comes in there. And all of a sudden, they get another recruit from San Francisco named Najee Harris. Number one overall recruit in his class. Running back chooses to go to Alabama. And this is the perfect encapsulation of what Alabama was building the two years before. Really three, because they had to start in 2013 during the kick six loss. And they get the guy from San Francisco. No connection to Alabama. At the same time, they're recruiting Tua from Hawaii to come play. No connection to the city, no connection to the state, no connection to the southern United States. But because the college football well has dried up on the West Coast, combined with the fact that there's no more regions in college football, because the reason conferences are based on region originally and why recruiting cycles are based on region is because television contracts were based on region. But now every game is available everywhere. And so region doesn't matter anymore in the sport, which is why in the grand scheme of the, um, what's it called, the domino effect that we saw after, as a foil of this Alabama team, years later you have the ACC and the Pac-12 and the Big 12 talking about merging their conferences together. And so Alabama finds themselves in a place where they get to be the program out in front of everything and paving the way for the future. They take advantage of the fact that we can go to San Francisco and bring in Najee Harris. We can go to Hawaii and bring in the five-star Tua Tungavailoa. There are no more restrictions, no regional markets. We have unlimited budgets to go do recruiting. And Alabama starts building this power behind Eight running backs who would eventually see the NFL, including six running backs who are currently starters in the NFL. That 2014 team, I've talked about it before on podcast, and it was only bringing it up in meme that it actually went viral. But that Alabama team had Derrick Henry, TJ Yeldon, Kenyon Drake, Alvin Kamara at the exact same time. Then they'd bring in Bo Scarborough and Damian Harris. Damian Harris had gone to be a starter for the Patriots. Then at the same time are recruiting Josh Jacobs and Najee Harris, both of whom end up being first round picks. Derrick Henry, second round pick. Alvin Kamara, who leaves and goes to Tennessee, third round pick. Kenyon Drake, third round pick. They get all the best indiscriminately. And of course, because Alabama, even if you have four guys deep in their roster, you can still find a way to the NFL. I remember Najee Harris couldn't sniff the field as a freshman. He had like negative two yards in one game. And after a while, number one recruit ends up filling out, getting bigger than he already was the super freak human that he was. And and as everyone else graduates, like Josh Jacobs and Damian Harris, Najee Harris slides into the number one role. And all of a sudden he's finishing top five in the Heisman because of course he is. He was the number one recruit not just running backs, in all of high school football in 2017. 
And so, of course, Najee Harris ends up being this super freak athlete who, after three years, becomes a first-round pick in the NFL because he was a five-star recruit coming out or whatever higher-than-five-star recruit you could find. And that's why I think you should draft Najee Harris on your fantasy football teams. But this guy indiscriminately goes to Alabama and regardless of region, like USC can't pocket him, Oregon maybe doesn't even make a move for him, which region matters in this case, especially in college basketball sometimes if you live near the local school and the 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 legacy is there like Imani Bates in Michigan State right now. But at the same time, region doesn't matter in college football anymore and everyone, in, specifically the money, is catching up to that reality. And Alabama foretold a lot of this from a magical run of running backs from 2014 to 2015, where they had eight starting running backs in the NFL, including six or eight running backs, six starters in the NFL on their roster at the same time or committed to play. And it foretold a lot of what we're seeing now with the Alabama dominance going across the decade with no one other than Clemson, who shares the pedestal, and Ohio State every now and then really staking claim to it other than like one LSU season. We see what the sport was and what the sport is becoming across a decade, foretold then by name, image, and likeness speeding up the process because legally the NCAA's business model cannot continue, which again, the NCAA's business model has always been flawed in this way but slowly but steadily we're getting there by creating a new market so that players can earn money while the NCAA and the schools can still not pay their employees but at the same time it still foretells that the money changes with the times and all of this was being foretold by the leaders on this thing most importantly Alabama Clemson Ohio State to a larger extent Georgia or a lesser extent Georgia as well I will throw Mark Rick or not Mark Rick Kirby Smart and Georgia into the mix there as well. Um, but specifically those three programs that have now become the dominant powers of college football. And as you see the initial college football rankings come out today, well, Monday, but really Tuesday, as you see the initial rankings come out, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, right at the top. It's an interesting dichotomy that was foretold by a lot of what Alabama was doing back in 2014 and 2013 in response to not getting to be the greatest college football dynasty in the history of the sport by winning three straight national championships. They just responded by becoming an NFL factory that wins championships, no doubt, but they don't win it every year. It's a weird on-again, off-again thing for Alabama. They won a championship in 15 and then 17 and then, of course, last year in 2020. Six championships over the last 11 years, though. It's pretty dang remarkable. Pretty dang remarkable for an Alabama Crimson Tide team that has won championship after championship and produced NFL greats and foretold a lot of the market corrections that we are now seeing across college football. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day Monday through Friday as well as soon to be wired up on Sundays football season is right around the corner so be on the lookout sometimes for those Sunday episodes they kind of kind of sneak in there every now and then 
Uh, thank you to everyone who has supported us in this transition to Believe. Download as many episodes as you can. Go back through the archives. Download, download, download. It's going to help us start selling our selling our podcast, basically, um, and selling my soul uh, to try and make a little bit of quiche on the side here with our lovely partners over at Believe. Um, follow Comical Sports Memes if you want to check out the uh, full list of the Alabama guys. It's a uh, more, it may have been a little confusing because I messed up Kenyon Drake and Bo Scarborough. The point still stands, but check out that map I have on our recent if you want to also get into this uh, this Alabama story that is quite interesting. So, with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, hopefully with better predictions and maybe some more interesting sound effects. Take it easy, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.